Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Good morning. I want to begin by thanking uh, CSIS for organizing this event. Michael Natera, Moises Rendon have been uh, key partners in the building of this Plan País project we've been working so uh, strongly in. And I also want to thank USAID for all their support uh, in our cause and in the Venezuelan democratic struggle. I also want to say um, that Venezuela used to be a country well ahead of its neighbors, well ahead in the region. And water supply was one of those elements who we showed we could do things very well. Between 1958 and 1998, 72 water reservoirs were built in the country with a capacity of around 32,000 million cubic meters. Between 1998, when Chavez won his first election, and 2018, only two reservoirs were built with a capacity of around 188 million cubic meters. That's only 1% of what had been built before. So it's not a surprise that we see the situation we're in right now. And the origin of this crisis, it's very clear. The appointment of people who know nothing about the sector, but not a lot about politics. The lack of training and support for human resources have led thousands of workers to look for somewhere else to, to work. The dismissal of the private sector as a key ally to reconstruct and to rebuild our country. The mismanagement of funding. The freezing of tariffs in the middle of huge inflation. And of course, corruption. Corruption has been seen like never before, not only in Venezuela, but in Latin America during the last 20 years. To only uh, remind the audience of two projects in which water have seen corruption all over. We can talk about two e four, a water supply uh, project for Caracas, which where, where we invested close to $476 million, and it was supposed to be ready in 2012. But now we know there is a lot to be done, and it's not even close to being ready. But also the Aqueducto Bolivariano Falcón, a project in the western part of the country, where more than $450 million were invested and where its water reservoir now, it's dry, so the project will never be done. What we're seeing today in Venezuela, it's not the result of a natural disaster. It's not the result of a civil war. It's a man-made disaster. It's a project obsolete and a failed system called socialism, socialism of the 21st century. Unfortunately, this problem is not unique to water. We see similar situations in electricity, oil, energy, transportation, health, education, and pretty much anything in Venezuela. That's why in January this year, the National Assembly and President Guaido decided to create a Plan País Committee, which I'm honored to head, and that has been working very hard during the last few months with thousands of experts all around the country that even in the midst of this very deep crisis have contributed tremendously to have some of the ideas you will see today. So I want to thank you again for joining us today. 
And I hope you can learn a little bit more about our crisis, but I also hope you can join us in the reconstruction of our country and our democracy. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Deputy Administrator Glick, for your thoughtful and encouraging remarks. Venezuela's future will definitely rely on key international actors and institutions like USA. Thank you, Diputado Juan Mejia, for your remarks, too. This is a very important initiative. I'm very happy that we're doing this here at CSIS. I'm Moises Rendon. I'm the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative here at CSIS. And we have an important day ahead to talk about the water crisis in Venezuela. I just want to spend a couple of minutes to lay out the agenda. We have a, a, a long but very important day ahead. The agenda is also available at the, at the registration table, and it's also on the website in case you want to double check. Uh, but we're going to have two panel discussions with experts today. The first one is going to focus on the diagnostic of the water crisis in Venezuela. Um, before each panel, we will have a Venezuelan experts provide a PowerPoint presentation to lay out the issues. This is a 15-minute presentation before we join the panel and have a discussion, right? And the second panel is going to focus more on the path ahead, right? What is the role of the international community to help rebuild um, the water management system in Venezuela? It's important to know that the experts that you're going to listen from, the Venezuelan experts, are part of what is known as Plan País. This is an initiative, as the Diputado was mentioning, from the National Assembly and the interim government. But they are also working on organizations and companies, right? They're not part of the interim government. They're experts who are willing to put their time and effort in a pro bono basis to help uh, think and, and put together this rebuilding um, plan for Venezuela. So we, we thank them for their effort and their time to do this with, with Plan País. Um, after the first panel, we will have a coffee break. It's going to be 10 minutes coffee break before we join the second panel. So I encourage you to stay around. And, and after the second panel, we will invite you to have lunch. We're going to have a buffet lunch, hot food uh, available for all of you. Um, and again, we encourage you to stay because during the lunch, we're going to hear from two top Venezuelan political leaders who are coming from the ground. One of them is Diputada Nora Bracho, who is a National Assembly deputy. And they're going to provide insights of what they are seeing on the ground on the water crisis in Venezuela. We're going to have some visual for you to, to see. Uh, so I will encourage you to stay during the lunchtime. Something to know for those watching online, unfortunately, we won't be live streaming the lunch. I guess that's the price that you pay for not coming in person to CSIS. But um, I will encourage all of you to stay in the room and, and if your time allows to, to stay around in the lunch. It's going to be a networking opportunity for all of you to get to know the, the Plan País experts and others in the room. Um, with no further ado, I, I would like to introduce Mark Snyder. He's a senior advisor. Um, yes, uh, Mark Snyder. He's a senior advisor with us at CSIS. Uh, he's going to in, uh, introduce... Um, yeah, Jose Maria de Viana, who is going to do the presentation on the diagnostic water crisis. Correct. Por favor, yo creo que los miembros del panel pueden ya. 
members of the panel may come forward. I appreciate the opportunity to open and moderate this panel of distinguished experts on the water crisis in Venezuela and its impact on the health and welfare of the Venezuelan people. While many commentators and experts and researchers have documented the humanitarian crisis over the past several years under the Maduro regime, one of the critical components of that crisis has not been discussed in detail here in Washington until today. To a degree unappreciated by the international community, access to clean drinking water is a human right currently effectively denied in Venezuela, with enormous damaging consequences for human health, family well-being, and the environment. And to give us an, sort of a panorama and overview of this crisis, we're going to hear from Jose Maria de Viana. He it currently is the technical coordinator for public services for Plan País. His career spans more than 40 years as an executive and educator. Jose Maria was president of Hidro Capital, which was the Caracas water utility company, which handled all of the water distribution management um, for the greater Caracas. He also served as the vice president for development at the Metropolitan University in Caracas, and teaches at the, as a professor in the engineering school at the Andres Bello Catholic University, and holds a civil engineering degree from Andres Bello. Jose Maria. Bueno, muchas gracias. Thank you very much to those who have organized this event. We are very uh, pleased that you have interest in Venezuela and this program. And I'd also like to thank a colleague from Venezuela, Alo Soten, who's the one who uh, first came up with this idea five months ago, and now we have it uh, underway. It's very difficult to think how a country that was on the vanguard of, of water treatment and potable water in Latin America, we were the pioneers uh, in uh, doing away with malaria a country that had one of the most amazing and developed infrastructure systems. For 50 years, between 1920 and 1970, it, it had the highest rate of growth uh, throughout the world. And this led to civilized development. Uh, and allowed us to deal with uh, horrific uh, tropical diseases. And now we find ourselves in this uh, situation in which the level of poverty is very tied to the lack of public services. Without an access to these public services, uh, it creates even worse poverty because there's very little that can be done about it. So with that, As part of 
Plan País, we have a chapter on public services or utilities. I'll speak to that later. In terms of potable water, it was developed by the Orinoco Group. It's a, a think tank uh, of ex made up of experts in the area in this sector. So again, we're looking at a country that 20 years ago had a production capacity or potable water of around 3,700 uh, hectometers cubed per year, almost 400 uh, liters a day per inhabitant. It's a significant amount. And I want to highlight that because we're talking about a country that has huge uh, infrastructure systems already built. What we're looking at now is a deterioration of these systems, what has to be done to restore them because they're really world-class systems that are already existing. Those cities with uh, more moderate uh, climates, Caracas, 800 meters above sea level, we have motorized uh, systems that can produce 800 megawatts. Uh, five, however, almost... 500 miles of transport systems coming from national parks that have high-quality water that have been transported. Provide that we have aqueducts that cover 90 93% of the country. Here we see that it wasn't an effort that was made during a year. It was a process uh, that we began in the 30s, 40s, when Venezuela decided it was going to be a modern country. And here you can see... What we want to show here is you have about 40 dams for... Uh, drinking water. This was built in the 40s. In the 20th, we began building all the way to the 90s. So this was a process that was generations of Venezuelans who were building infrastructure that would be distributed throughout the country. So that process was uh, continuous, although there were different governments and administrations. And even uh, during dictatorship periods, the growth in this was uh, constant. In the case of uh, uh, drinking water, the, the, same, uh, the same thing. We have over 100,000 liters per second for treatment of uh, drinking water. So the initiative for water was the health uh, uh, sanitary uh, purpose uh, or and a, san and a health uh, purpose as well because we had like a third percent of the population had tropical diseases and we and it was decided that the best way to maintain the health of the population was to keep uh, clean drinking water and that's why the quality of drinking water and the services were extraordinary. Just to give you an example, this is a system for uh, the larger uh, metropolitan area for Caracas. This was uh, built throughout uh, the ages at the beginning, the first uh, works was in the 40s when we started bringing water from far away. We have three feeding systems for the city. The city 20 years ago received 20 million liters of water per second from uh, sources of excellent quality water. This is another system 
the island of Margarita, the most beautiful island in uh, the Caribbean, as you know. It also has the privilege that is the one only island that is connected with the tubes of drinking water. In the 60s, this connection was established, and that's why the island that under regular conditions, it's a desert. Now it is a garden because of the water. Then a second uh, tube was uh, built for water, and that system uh, of uh, large feeding because they receive uh, from forces of excellent quality water. The island is receiving the half of the water it received 50 years ago. So again, it's a desert, and again, a few people want to go visit because what made the island differ, different was not only the warmth and the beautiful uh, people, it was a green island in the Caribbean, no longer. Another system of the central region of Venezuela that it uh, reaches the population of the Lake of Valencia. Just to let you know that we have the infrastructure, it's existing, but it is uh, in bad shape. The difference with other countries that in other countries that have similar situations that have no infrastructure. So somebody can ask, uh, how did it happen? How could 20 years could uh, bring such devastation into this country? Engineers had a difficult time trying to explain it. And it's very simple if I all try. At a given time, we had a government that was authoritarian, where you tried to control, have absolute control of the entire country and of every inch of the country, because this authoritarian regime came in to stay. Uh, it could It could arrive at a country uh, democratically, but it decided to remain, and it established a political path to full control. Uh, Services-oriented companies were very important to that regime because these companies were, uh, were coming from a highly strong uh, companies that have a corporate structure, uh, good internal controls, and that made these companies uh, that had uh, very special services. Uh, Metro, for example, in Caracas was concessionary, had excellent uh, services. And so when tourists came to Venezuela, we would take them to the Metro to see how beautiful and how excellent the Metro worked for the population and how the Venezuelans who, when they were in the metro, became all of a sudden Nordic citizens, uh, behaving and being very uh, efficient and clean and whatnot. So this authoritarian regime decides that one of the ways to control the population is to take control over services. This began the process that a long-stranding tradition of uh, working by merit by professional individuals, and it was a long history of technical background and knowledge, even though these companies sometimes were public uh, entities. And so this uh, authoritarian gov uh, government began nominating the head of those companies to their people. And I'm talking about it because this is repeating itself in other places. So this, uh, people who started being at the head of these companies were more obedient and subservient than uh, have the knowledge. So it was better to have a hat than to have talent. So this uh, domination 
was abused by nominating officers from armed forces who were not trained in the work itself, but they knew a lot about obedience and following orders. So then uh, the rates were frozen. People at the beginning thought it was a populist government. So what happened was you're taking the oxygen away from these companies and increasing dependency on the government. And then control of government agencies. There were agencies uh, that have several directors from civilian government who were controlling everything. And that was also connected to have those companies working for other purposes because the authoritarian regime wanted to use those funds, the coffers, to use them for something else. Political campaigns outside of our country that were funded by monies that came from uh, the companies in the hiring process. Those corrupt practices are only possible if uh, the corporations, uh, uh, governments allowed it. And then uh, hiring people who have, have no knowledge but uh, leadership. Then we have brain drain. Brain drain from the companies and then brain drain from the country. And then there was a ban on subcontracting because all of these large companies had contractors. And then that was uh, banned. And they started hiring their own people. And then the, um, the hiring uh, was uh, needed uh, loyalty, not knowledge. And so then, during the, this first 10 years, we had uh, uh, enough funding and money for 10 years. Uh, Venezuela had uh, saw uh, excellent uh, price for oil, and that allowed the monies in the coffers to be multiplied, and $9 billion uh, were invested in infrastructure. How can you invest $9 billion uh, and create nothing. So how do you invest? How can you invest so much in uh, construction or works that were useless or were never completed? Uh, Congressman Mejia was talking about having the largest aqueduct in the country. Excellent quality uh, tubes that connects the driest part of the uh, country from the peninsula of Paragua, connected to a uh, dam that is full of sediment. So the aqueduct is fantastic, but it, has, it is impossible to transport water, and nor it will ever happen. This is a, uh, an example of not the lack of money, but how it is spent. Because although during that time there were people that were constantly a warning that the funds were being diverted from what was important. So it was this happened at a time when we had uh, oil bonanza, and we come to infrastructure that was built only till 1998. Uh, by summarizing, you know what? I, how can I explain this? All production systems, the dams are built. Most of them have uh, uh, the catchment uh, is there. The water is excellent quality, except for some that we will uh, share with you after. 
that uh, uh, these were built by the state itself that were bringing uh, dirty water, uh, either wastewater or salty water, uh, it's useless. Venezuela has catchment areas that have water in the dams, but the population is thirsty. And the problem is the transportation of bringing the water from its source to the city. Another important thing is that systems that have been uh, that are long-standing, but but they were built solidly, so they they work very well if you fix them. For example, in Caracas, the system itself in uh, Cuyo One and Two, they have a supply system. They send half of its capacity are being uh, shipped. In some cases, only a fourth. Why you may ask yourself? But these are motorized systems that have. Uh, mobile units, uh, large units that during for years they have received no maintenance. But they were designed so that once they are fixed and updated, they will ca- they can go back to its original capacity. And here what I want to highlight is the source of this uh, horrible situation that is linked to uh, institutional destruction of companies that used to be uh, competitive, who were su- that were sustainable, that were based um, on um, internal capacity, but that once that uh, competitiveness is lost, they wasted the resource. There is not one uh, works that has received any investment that can be uh, included as something that is in process or getting better. All works that were begun. Uh, works one and four that was an added uh, building for uh, Venezuela. The spent for the original budget has spent three times already and nothing is there. And this is happening nationwide. At one time, it was more important to solve uh, issues in foreign countries where they have a continental political uh, uh, importance than taking care of what the population of Venezuela needed. The experience, we had companies like Odebrecht in 1998. They ha- Odebrecht had no works in Venezuela, and now it is the most important one. We have the case of Tocoma, the hydroelectric plant, where we have already spent almost $11, million, uh, $11 billion, and there's nothing to show for it. So that is because that authoritarian regime was taken to these companies, uh, services companies. And companies used to be very careful with their works and what they decided to build, and they broke that uh, history. Now, what are we going to do with water? So the path with water, we have been working, uh, uh, working, trying to see how do we solve the situation? And there's two phases to this. We have the number one, rehabilitation of the system itself. Uh, Repair, rebuild some things. How? Repair because there's no way a government can uh, survive these levels of uh, deterioration in uh, service in, um, in utilities for the population because the nation has to provide services to its population. There's no way of having a healthy population if we don't have any drinking water. We have no way to reactivate the economy 
if we don't have uh, uh, drinking water or portable water. We want to highlight that the uh, physical diagnosis that was done to see how the work, how the systems are working. But the number one is we have to rebuild the institutional uh, structure that will allow that the continuity of the services keep, stays in the hands of uh, co competent and technical and responsible uh, uh, companies. We have a 90-day diagnosis or assessment uh, uh, area. We have a year to come out of the emergency uh, situation. We can do it. We have studied. We have studied a large cities with over 100,000 uh, uh, population. We can do it. And within five years, we expect to uh, be able to rehabilitate the entire water system. Then there's the physical infrastructure. Engineers are always concerned. What do we have to do? Where do we have to fix the engines, the motors? We have to rebuild some companies with a modern uh, model that uh, leads to sustainability and autonomy. And then we have to restore political uh, policies that uh, uh, set uh, tariffs, uh, rates, uh, fees and going back to corporation government of these companies, whether uh, private or, or public companies, but a corporate identity. And then we want to have investments in health than corporate other. That is the goal that we're watching. Thank you very much. <clears throat> now, we really, we just heard from one of the foremost experts on water in Venezuela in, in learning about the deterioration of the physical plant and the destruction of a system that was working, but it also on a plan for going forward, La Ruta del Agua. Uh, I'm just going to begin, as I introduce, to underscore two of the, to me anyway, two compelling statistics that underscore the magnitude of the crisis, I think. Going forward, como se hace para... And one of these came actually from the two speakers today, Jose Maria and Roberto Boisson, quoted a year ago in a report by four civil society groups. And this slide simply shows that as a result of what has happened, in 1988, 87% of the Venezuelan people received on a regular, continuous basis clean drinking water. And today, that statistic has dropped to 18%. That is stunning. The second statistic that struck me as well as reflecting the magnitude of the impact of the water crisis on public health, and every parent here can understand this, the mortality rate for children under five years of age was higher in 2017, according to UNICEF, than it was in 1990. 
31 deaths per 1,000 live births. Just for comparison, that is higher today than in Cambodia, Bolivia, Bangladesh. And while those countries have, their rates have been getting better over the years, Venezuela, as you can see, has been getting dramatically worse. And what that means is that in 2017, 18,500 boys and girls died, essentially from preventable causes related to diarrheal disease, infections, and tropical diseases, all linked to water in some way. Had the rate remained what it was in 2001, and that shows you, 6,000 fewer children would have died. Had it remained where it was in 2010, 12,000 fewer children would have died. These are simply stark facts that reflect a failed state and a national nightmare that must come to an end. Our panel this morning will discuss these as aspects of questions of access to quality water, systemic deterioration, and the way forward. First, we will hear from Maria Julia Boca from the Inter-American Development Bank. Maria Julia has been the lead economist at the Inter-American Development Bank at the Water and Sanitation Division in Washington since 2008. She's been involved in the design, execution, and evaluation of water, sanitation, and urban drainage projects in more than 20 countries in the Latin American and Caribbean region. She has more than 15 years of experience in economic evaluation of infrastructure projects, impact evaluation, sustainability, and results management. She has a bachelor's degree in economics from Universidad Nacional de Córdoba in Argentina and a Master of Science in Economics from Carnegie Mellon University here. Maria Julia. Thank you very much, Mark and Moises, for this invitation. After this wonderful overview that uh, Jose Maria uh, provided us, I'd just like to share a few points more that might complement this uh, overview that he provided. Obviously, water and sanitation services are very deteriorated, and it's been that way for the uh, recent years. The population, especially the urban population, uh, is not receiving water in a continuous manner and sometimes they simply go to other water sources. For example, the water distribution systems. The data that Mark just uh, shared is also interesting. 18% that has access to potable water, but also the official statistics, um, which are done based on national surveys. If we go back to 2018, it reflected that only 30% of homes actually had water every day in a continuous fashion. Large part of the population, especially in urban areas, only had water two days a week. We're talking about the year 2018. The energy crisis that was really critical in February, March, will only get worse if this data that we've already reflected from the year 2018 doesn't improve. So in most homes, 
they have to get their water from sources that aren't reliable, that aren't necessarily clean, and are much more expensive, as is normal in these types of cases. Now, water coverage, or the water system coverage, has also dropped off over the years. The percentage of the population that has access to water through a water system or water network has dropped off. We're talking about millions of persons who not only have insufficient uh, water, but also water outages. They don't even have access to a water uh, network system. According to a national survey uh, from this year, 70% of the hospitals in, in the country don't have continuous water service. That also has enormous implications uh, for uh, the uh, health. Although there is not official data, uh, because it's been a long time since it's been published, the quality of water that is that on average it is provided through these system systems uh, receives all sorts of complaints from the, the population in terms of the color, the smell. Uh, so that leads the population to go purchase bottled water or water from other um, water distribution services. What can we take from all of this? As Jose Maria uh, mentioned, it, it reflects horrible de deterioration of the system, the water systems. Decades ago, yeah, things were markedly different. This is a question of maintenance, of operational skills. There are also sedimentation issues in many of the uh, water reservoirs, in most of them, frankly, throughout the country. Also, polluted water, as Jose Maria mentioned, many of that is because they have an intake from wastewater, and, so, and that goes directly into some of these re reservoirs. And there's also a question of uh, overuse of aquifers and, and wells. Yeah, this is seen primarily around the larger cities, Caracas and others. Again, overuse, overexploitation of these water resources, again, with a lack of planning. And then, obviously, maintenance issues in terms of the infrastructure. In Venezuela, we have more than 140 uh, water purification plants. Very few of them are working uh, as they should. There are also huge issues with the pumping uh, system, especially in larger cities. For example, in Caracas, they're living in uh, higher uh, at higher uh, elevations, so they don't uh, rely on those pumping systems necessarily as much, but it affects lower-lying areas. That's another problem that has to do with the water distribution system. And then also, this is having an impact on the uh, uh, electric supply. It's estimated that almost 15 or 17 million persons uh, live in some of these areas and heavily rely on the electric grid to have their water supply uh, work. So they are very heavily uh, affected. There's a, a close relationship between the two systems. To conclude, I just wanted to highlight what Jose Maria already did. 
there's a deficit in terms of the management and operational uh, skills needed. The systems are done according to regional uh, breakdown throughout the country, and they've uh, had huge losses or, or brain drain in terms of their management and technicians, and those are issues that will have to be dealt with. And then finally, the financial aspect. As of 2004, water tariffs were frozen. So given the, the inflation rates that we're all well aware of, the tariffs are practically zero. So there's a very serious problem in terms of financing this infrastructure. So capital issues, but also maintenance operational issues. Thank you very much. Um, uh, he is the public health lead uh, of the Humanitarian Task Force of the National Assembly of Plan País. He's a consultant, consulting physician for infectious diseases at Policlinica Policlinica Metropolitana and research professor in epidemiology for the Institute of Tropical Medicine at the Central University of Venezuela. Dr. Castro's medical degree from Central University of Venezuela and from Beth Israel Diaconis Medical Center in in addition, he has a Master of Sciences in Infectious Diseases from Caracas' Vargas Hospital and a Master of Science in Inter Internal Medicine from the Central University of Venezuela. Dr. Castro. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to share with you a couple of minutes and to talk about a diagnosis and a proposal of a, such a, a difficult sector as the health uh, sector in Venezuela. I will try to share the uh, best the data I have to share, trying to understand that the interaction of water and health are uh, an intrinsic reality because although we divide them to understand it and academically, uh, it cannot be so separated in real life. And the consequences of these changes go beyond uh, what would uh, uh, seem uh, to, uh, to, to be. This is not my presentation. I think they didn't load my presentation. I think the slides, I, I think uh, we were going to show them tomorrow. So uh, uh, forgive me that. Let me just talk about, give you some uh, general comments 
about the topic. It's important to understand that uh, Venezuela uh, reached its uh, development level because of uh, interventions that have to do with controlling uh, um, uh, diseases, uh, um, uh, trans outbreaks. outbreaks in Venezuela in the 40s. Uh, and uh, because we weren't able to reach the oil production levels af un until we uh, were able to control uh, measles, uh, uh, mosquito-borne infections, uh, and other things. And uh, we had to improve all health uh, situations. Uh, doctors always believed that controlling malaria had to be have to do with uh, DDT because we used at the time and. Uh, uh, malaria-controlling uh, medications, but it wasn't until the water aspect was uh, uh, controlled, uh, uh, just uh, bringing water to the population through uh, through tubes and uh, and sewage treatment plants. All of those things improved. Uh, we the units that were spraying DDT and distributing anti-malaria medication were also building the uh, tubes to bring water. All of that improved the life at the Venezuelans. It took 40, 50 years to improve, to get to reach to its highest uh, health level in the, 19, in the end of the 19th and a year before it went down all over again. Another thing that happened in a continent that is unique to Venezuela, it has uh, that has a uh, pro, you know an increasingly better health system, and all of a sudden it's like the dam broke. All these health benefits uh, that the population had uh, began having uh, everything worrying. Tomorrow I'll speak more detail about this. But Venezuela, differently from other countries like in Central America or Mexico, that had a prevalence of hepatitis A that is transmitted through water because uh, you, we, we had low levels of hepatitis because few people uh, would uh, would uh, uh, get uh, hepatitis because of the water, and it was in poor areas. The contagion capacity decreased. Then we have a vaccine in hepatitis A but in the world, but because of different decisions, it was not included in our request for uh, vaccinations. And that uh, produced many people who are susceptible to it because, you know, but people were, getting, you know, not getting it uh, uh, until the dam, as I said, breaks. And then we had a, a outbreak of hepatitis A that is lasting four or five years. Tomorrow I'll give you more information about that. And that is not visible. It is not written down anywhere about epidemiology because the government is controlling the data. But the population beyond the disease as it is, it is expressed it shows how the utilities in the country have collapsed, and it shows how all of a sudden this situation uh, deteriorates and this affects health. I have to talk about the link between lack of water and, uh, and malnutrition. One of the, ca the case, one of the reasons for malnutrition is not being to protect and not having water to cook. It is a problem. It is something that we cannot untangle because although you can't see it in the data, it is something we have to emphasize much because until we don't solve basic problems such as water and uh, power, 
malnutrition and diseases will uh, increase in numbers. And let me conclude with something that it was sort of a discovery for us, uh, because although we monitor all hospitals in the country, when we started connecting to the UN system and International Red Cross about human uh, uh, humanitarian assistance, the first thing what the people come from abroad, they come and see the hospitals and they say, It's not as bad as Venezuela, it says, because if you go to the hospital, to the university hospital, you know, 1,600 uh, beds, infrastructure built 60 years ago, and the structure as well is good. But you go into the hospital, it's a hospital without power, without uh, water, no patients. And that is striking for international people, because this is, we're not talking about Africa. I know it's people that know it's a place that has been destroyed, a country that's destroyed. No, you have infrastructure that is there, but it's not working. And although the international community came and brought in medications, now they know that they have to dig wells in order to get water. And that just shows the crisis in Venezuela. It is a situation we have a hospital with a few doctors, but no services, no water. That is what's happening throughout the country. Let me not talk about ambulatory services that are suffering exactly what the households. 70% of them have no water, and that has consequences to health, of course. We currently... It's very difficult to wash your hands in a hospital in Venezuela. And people who know about infectious diseases, which is what I do every day, has an impact in life because there's so many infections connected to hospital infections. It has collateral uh, uh, effects because if you go to an operation for your hip, for example, and you get an infection, that is the next three years you may be suffering because of it. And this is rampant throughout the country. I wanted to emphasize the fact that the level of deterioration may not be really seen by the numbers that we can show. Some of the numbers that I will show tomorrow are uh, amazing, but they these they might make uh, people come from others outside to understand to question. In an oil, a rich oil producing country gets to hear that in such a short time to health levels that show that we went back in 30, 40 years in a very, very short time. And this is a trend. This is something that only happened in Venezuela. Venezuela, uh, health systems in Venezuela are worse than in Haiti. And it is a shame. We are, uh, you know, We are ashamed of these numbers. And then lastly, what I want to see, and this has nothing to do with sanctions, I want to emphasize the sanctions that are, you know, unipersonal. Uh, you know, this started uh, taking place a year ago when we saw the uh, 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 mortality rates of children, of mothers. Uh, this may, this deterioration in terms of mortality rates may have started before. In 1993, the mortality rate stopped in Venezuela. This is a year before Chavez. It was a government that has very unique characteristics. So the health problem started earlier than we believe, than we generally think. And we are at a phase that is exponentially even more mal uh, uh, negative because of the water, malnutrition, deficit of infrastructure, of services, of highways and roads, 
all of this make us that live we live in a failed country because of its health system water service and I will conclude today here I will begin uh, with some questions for the panel and then you may ask questions that you may have. And you can post your questions in English or in Spanish. The panel members will respond in the language they choose. Beginning with Dr. Castro's uh, uh, words. That the National Hospital Survey, as you said, found that 79% of the hospitals in some states in most of the states, had water shortages. It was four times what it was four years ago. And so in, in other words, that, that it, it is, the increase in the shortage is, is getting much worse. Now, my question is, and you've described some of the impacts, but my question is, in the Ruta del Agua, there's a sense that there needs to be some immediate recovery period response in the first six months first year, et cetera. What, in terms of dealing with the problem of getting water to the hospitals and to the uh, health clinics, what, what are you thinking about in terms of the emergency phase? Thank you, excellent question. In uh, Plan País, we have uh, included uh, for hospitals or to the uh, hospital services, which would be the basic. We're not talking about infrastructure yet. To put a, a, you know, bring a hospital to the point that they can uh, uh, operate a diverticulitis, uh, give birth, a cesarean. We're trying to provide uh, uh, investment to 50 hospitals of the 300 because these would be the ones that see more people. We need water there We by having uh, wells to each hospital. So a budget is 2.5% of the budget for emergencies for the first year. Given the cost that this entails, that's why we focus on this 50 hospitals because they're the ones that cover the most population. But we're including power being brought by alternative power sources and water from wells. In some cases, it'll be more simple yet, because in the case of large hospitals in Caracas, were built in um, 1995. Uh, some of them are 25 years old, so uh, uh, rehabilitating uh, uh, is uh, simpler, if you will. If we can have them to bring a, a well, for example, to to feed the hospital could be simple. But in others, is by using aquifers, have a, a emergency connection to the aquifer and have some local uh, uh, disinfection uh, or treatment areas. So that could be. But in the uh, hospitals of uh, energy, if we can bring power to the hospitals to have uh, some hospitals that are large hospitals, so then we need a, a, a source supply uh, because the problems with the power outages, sometimes we have water in the hospital, 
but the different levels of the hospitals don't have because there's no power to bring it up. Uh, there's a hospital that has suffered a year and a half without water services, but there is a plan and uh, for uh, for uh, reaching hospitals uh, as a first priority and also to uh, academic or education systems, schools, facilities. Children go to school, but there's no water, or the water they receive is uh, bad quality water. And so the problem is either they don't go to school and they, or when they go to school, they get sick at school. Just to add a little bit of context from the sector, and these are numbers we use for uh, water and sanitation that we use in pitching uh, politicians, uh, trying to convince them of what uh, Venezuela needs. The lack of quality access or access to quality water and sanity is a cause for diseases in the world, especially in children. Uh, UNICEF uh, studies uh, say that uh, infant mortality in children under five because of diarrhea could be decreasing at 60% if they have proper access to clean water and sanity, and incidence of diarrhea in 70%. So these are numbers that we provide when we're studying what is happening in Venezuela. And of course, impact in education, as Jose Maria was just saying, there is a strong connection between access to water and sanitation and education, not only because children are going to school that will increase when the services are adequate, but also the long-term effect that these diseases have in the cognitive capacities of children. Children who get sick with diarrhea very often can develop uh, um, anemia, and that prevents their uh, development of cognitive uh, uh, abilities in children, and that's a long-term thing, uh, uh, thing. And then productivity uh, of the population, because not only the increase in disease because of lack of water and sanitation causes uh, workdays loss, and that entails uh, less funding because of, uh, of wages, because they have to stay home and uh, take care of the child. And then they have to pay for water coming from other alternate sources. I have a question about quality of water. If there's no ability to add uh, chloride, chlorine to the water, then that inhibits the possibility to provide clean water. Why is it that this government or regime has been unable over the years to obtain chlorine and other chemical substances that are needed so that at least the water that does arrive is clean? In terms of water quality, we have to consider several factors. Venezuela is a strange uh, case because the most serious pollution into reservoirs was produced by the state itself. In the Valencia water table uh, rose, and so they had to evacuate that, but they did so into the worst place. In, it, that water went into reservoirs destined for uh, potability treatment plants. 
there's another uh, reservoir that was polluted by sewage water coming from the Coalencia, untreated water. So then that reservoir atrophied or became useless. So the other uh, reservoirs in Pau and Coalencia have atrophied due to sedimentation. In terms of the Pau water basin, the water became brackish because of the sulfates that were dumped into it. And again, as the action of the state. So atrophy, uh, atrophy or it was the system became overstressed. So we have water coming from natural parks that was high quality water. There's also the treatment plant uh, operations. It uses the same, these uh, systems or factories, as it were, have to have sufficient maintenance, uh, filters renewed, uh, and it's a very complex operation. And so maintenance hasn't, necessary maintenance hasn't been done. Venezuela was able to produce gas floro, but we were also able to produce our own alumina. This are some of the uh, key substances used to clarify or purify water. Again, this is once you have the water clarified, then you disinfect it. In the case of Venezuela, we did so with chlorine. The water treatment plants that produce their own uh, uh, chemical substances uh, were affected by the gas uh, production systems and the so if you're not they were unable to produce gas for automobiles and they weren't able to produce chlorine gas for water treatment and Cita is also used and now it's being imported from um, Jamaica, Australia or even more exotic places because the alumina has become deteriorated. So again, we're also not producing other substances uh, that are used in the water treatment process. So now we're having to import these reactive elements that we traditionally produced on our own. So that can also explain the, the issues with water quality. Untreated water, again, with a lack of substances for uh, purifying it. And then also intermittent uh, service. So clean water, sometimes uh, systems have low pressure, and so then the um, wastewater is coming into that clean water system. There were 7,000 cases of diarrhea, I think, uh, due to bacteria uh, pollution in the water. If the water were chlorinated, again, that would allow for, if there were a case of uh, pollution, uh, and this could be solved. Again, and we're talking about large cities that are having water service cut on and off. Dr. Castro? Yes, in the case of children, as Maria Julia mentioned, we have the perfect storm. Little access to water, uh, children with malnutrition, uh, 
rotavirus that's been rampant for the last eight or nine years. And then, in addition to the rotavirus, it's having a high impact on the mortality rates of children three and under. In addition to the facts themselves, we're seeing an exponential uh, consequence of these because of the interaction of these different uh, issues. The sum of the parts is, is greater than just the parts themselves added up. So this is going to have a huge impact on children three and under, which could affect the, the country itself for the next 40 or 50 years. Unfortunately, this mm, perfect storm is impacting uh, young children in Venezuela. We have to see how we can solve it. We also have to do community health systems so we could have uh, systems for producing uh, clean water community level and also improve upon our distribution systems. People think sometimes that if we just put some potable water pills into the water, we can solve it. But what if you have a tsunami? That was just an isolated event, but we're talking about something that's ongoing, so it has to be addressed at a system level. In the first months, if you could, have you planned how we might address these issues in terms of chlorine and how we might ensure a clean water supply. In the first months, we're going to have to import uh, these substances for several reasons. One is that gas chlorine, chlorine gas is something that for many years had uh, in system-wise hadn't been renovated. We had three and four million uh, pumping systems. But we don't have local capacity to produce the uh, chlorine gas. So we need the aluminum sulfate plus that. We have some colleagues who are working in Plan Pais, and they're working in the petrochemical uh, sector seeing if they could uh, increase production of these substances in certain areas. Again, the same uh, experts in this petrochemical sector might help us increase production for uh, uh, aluminum sulfate and other uh, chemical inputs. Of course, this will probably take three to six months to get things up and running before we could have domestic production. Now I'd like to ask uh, Maria Julia a question. We've heard about the magnitude of, of this issue in terms of operations, reconstruction, uh, rebuilding systems. Has the IDB had experience in assisting a country in building this type of a system? Again, it's a national uh, system. You mentioned all sorts of data. In the few years, we're talking about billions of dollars. Does the IDB uh, have experience in helping in that way? 
the Inter-American Development Bank uh, obviously has quite a bit of experience in helping with infrastructure systems, especially in this region, both in technical assistance as well as skills building and, and building on the infrastructure itself, also management. The magnitude of what we're seeing in Venezuela is unprecedented in the region, however. We have experience, for example, in supporting the rebuilding of polarization systems in Haiti from a few years back, but this is a bit different. As Jose Maria said, we're talking about infrastructure that at the time when it was built was truly had some of the highest standards throughout the region, very solid infrastructure. And as we mentioned earlier, when we look at the analyses, the support should be not just in cooperation in terms of the infrastructure, but also in institution building, recovering uh, management abilities, technical abilities, so that they can maintain and manage this infrastructure. And then also, as was commented recently, looking back at the water and sanitation system, uh, we did do, need to do this carefully and focus on critical uh, elements, such as the, the chlorine that was just mentioned. So the inputs necessary for the system will be critical. We also have to rebuild a large uh, system of technical uh, experts, those who worked in the design or engineering of these systems. There's, uh, we've lost that recently. Also, to talk about the scale of this project, first we'd have to do a very careful uh, diagnosis or, or analysis of each one of these uh, systems and operators and, and providers. You mentioned engineers and those who were responsible for managing the water system. Many of them have, have immigrated. If you look at this situation, could you tell us in general what percentage of the technical uh, staff has, has left the country? Venezuela for 50 years was one of the countries in the world that had uh, the highest levels of immigrants coming to it who were very well trained. And it was just continual uh, throughout that 50-year period. In recent years, Venezuela has become a net exporter of talent. As you can see in the news, it's not just, uh, well, it's all swaths of, of society. Those who are leaving are often the, the best prepared, best educated. In the university, we've lost between 70 and 80 percent of our uh, graduates. In LinkedIn, uh, you can see where people have graduated from and where they're working today. Those numbers between 60 and 70 percent, I'd say. But we've also lost young people between 30 and 50 years of age to that massive uh, uh, exit. Initially, the most highly trained uh, and educated are the ones to leave. So in Venezuela, 
in this country where we have people who are over 50 years of age, for example, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I count myself among them, but we also have very young people uh, who are affected by this. As you know, the diasporas uh, don't have such an easy, easy exit or return. Uh, they're now uh, adding value in, in other places. So the rebuilding of the country is going to have to be done by uh, adults and the very young who are going to fight for their country. So it's important to point that out. But again, people always think in terms of fiscal terms, how many millions of dollars, billions. But with scarce resources and when we have a very complex uh, rebuilding process, the real thing that will be needed will be uh, talent and skill. We'll also require assistance from international uh, organizations, but we're going to need a significant number of people who have the, the skills that will help us build these systems and later institutions. So it's a question of capacity building institutions, but also of building up the talent pool that we had. And I'm talking not just about the high-level uh, folks, but also those who worked on the, the distribution or conveyance systems, you know, those who worked in welding. Uh, talented welders are, are still available, but, you know, many of them have found work elsewhere in Chile and other, other places. So that talent pool is also something that will be critical to, to rebuild. Again, the scarcity of resources in Venezuela is not so much the finances, but human resources, human talent. Y ahora estamos listos para aceptar eh, preguntas del público. Habrá micrófonos. Good morning. I'm Diego Sharifkere. I was counselor of Chacao until two years ago in Caracas. So I thank Jose Maria and Julio. I thank Jose Maria for the, for all the support when he was a counselor in working with water. Chacao was one of the municipalities that started suffering uh, the water crisis uh, uh, more strongly, and he, uh, Jose Maria, helped us uh, with the process and to diagnose it in my city. So this, since this is a panel on the uh, assessment, the diagnosis, since uh, exports have an importance, we have to talk about corruption behind the water crisis. As Congressman Mejia said, he talked about doing four and four and the cuida and all that meant 487 million dollars that were stolen or mismanaged. Uh, how do you see corruption issue in the water, drinking water issue in Caracas and Venezuela? How, what role do you see of international community or other stakeholders to, I don't know, recover the funds that were stolen? Because although uh, human uh, talent is important to, for reconstruction, the funds are also important to rebuild the nation. Thank you. 
I just wanted to say that generally when we talk about corruption, one believes that there's people who are virtuous and others who are weak. All humans are weak by nature. And corruption, as in Venezuela, it's important to think that this was all part of a plan. Uh, there was a public funding from the state of Venezuela uh, uh, to enrich some people, but to fund a political project. So, uh, you know, behind the corruption of a Brazilian companies that is well uh, shown with the Lava Jato, the day we can uh, publish what happened in Venezuela, it will be a world bestseller because the Venezuelan case, it has much uh, funding, uh, few government controls, and that uh, three, three and four is one case, but Tacoma is more important because that's a hydroelectric uh, dam that is a twin to another one that will cost uh, $2.3 billion, and Tacoma, we've already has spent $10 billion and nothing is there to show for it. What's important is for when democratic control systems are destroyed, not only at government level, and we know that very well, but throughout the uh, agency services, you end up having uh, what, you know, we took a long time to understand that we had to name uh, the why, why should we, why shouldn't we have uh, elected it in the, democratically elect a military man. We understood that with Tokoma. We had a project that the uh, utilities companies, as we know them, public or private, like uh, Medellin or any, all of them have enough institutional cap uh, uh, capacity to prevent that uh, funds from disappearing. We have been looking we, we don't have to look far to find the guilty parties. We have to learn the lesson that uh, government structures, public companies especially, are, are, are must uh, so that uh, corruption doesn't end up being a government policy to fund our friends, our neighbors, and the people in the party. I think we will know how much money went to other countries to fund a, a political process that had Venezuelan backing. We would like that money back because we need it. What Diego was asking is, uh, that's what I'm concerned with. Maybe we can talk about it here and we can't say it in Venezuela. It's my impression that this is not due to inefficiency in Chacao. I know there's people working there like Moncho, and there's the people from Harvard are working there trying to, to see how can we manage the utilities based on political criteria. We've seen it in health. You know, you ask money to the country to vaccinate children. So there's an intent behind it that goes against aspects such as human rights, uh, criminal system, violations, uh, or crimes. And I'm not an expert in legal matters, 
but as a physician in Venezuela, that's how I feel. So regardless of how the transition takes place, whether blaming people, you know, in the future, I think that some employers don't know what the responsibility is downstream. What happens when water is cut to Chacao for longer periods than what they should? Beyond uh, rationale that may have a logic, but I think there is a government logic. We see it in health, but uh, services as well. I think we haven't pointed, shed light to that by assigning responsibilities to employees who have that with them, and this is violating human rights. Cristina Aureli. My question is for Deviana. One of your slides, we could see an impact on the power uh, uh, infrastructure. Could you talk about the impact that mining is having to the south of Orinoco River on the electrical uh, crisis, power power structure in terms of Macau and Ma One of the blessings Venezuela has is the Caroni River. It's a, a special uh, case in uh, the world. We have a very high uh, fall with uh, 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 high quality uh, rock where we could build and take advantage of all the water flow coming from high, high altitude, and we can produce 80%, 90% of uh, the energy that we need. That is a blessing for hydroelectric power in that sense. This government has been uh, fostering uh, illegal mining at the basins of those rivers, Parani, Paragua, and Cawa. These are rivers that tend to be that that would be a world uh, treasure. As you know, the Amazon is uh, very important for human being, and there we, we do have important mining, but the exploration, the mining is uh, irrational. They're trying to get diamonds, coltan, and gold very quickly. It has been uh, taken advantage right now because the regime is paying some of their operations, but they are destroying uh, an, an environment that is fragile. We're talking about a, a jungle that has been there for millions of years, so the that balance, uh, the breaking of that balance with illegal mining, it's, it's just wrong. What we would uh, the the uh, destruction of these uh, basins is they are destroying a a renewable source of energy, and I'm talking about the rivers. This is causing uh, uh, bringing sediment that we didn't have before, and the degenerative process in the Amazon is uh, terrible. You start cutting the uh, the Amazon, and that will not get restored. It does not have short-term impact because 
Uh, we do we do generate more materials in sus, uh, suspended material, but the turbines in Carolina are different. But they were destroying the renewable uh, energy production uh, available in the planet. Maybe the concentration we have energy that we have there in that region. And what's happening is a government that is on its outgoing phase is does not care how he leaves the house behind. But we will be living there, and so will our grandchildren. And we do believe it has a horrible uh, impact because the 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 uh, the land on which this is happening is very vast. Although the question is not mine, it has a consequence on health. Number one, according to our calculations, last year ended up with we ended up about two million. Two million of 25 million inhabitants of malaria. That is the worst malaria uh, results uh, ever in the world, according to World Health Report. That is directly linked with two things, mining, illegal mining, and two, control of irregular uh, groups, uh, guerrilla works connected to the government. And this is where we have to connect the dot. We cannot solve the malaria problem with anti-malarial medication and uh, mosquito nets. If we don't uh, touch on security, which is national security, controlling irregular armies that are in areas that are vast and extended, we will not be able to cut this vicious uh, circle with malaria, uh, malaria and all the diseases. But beyond the uh, beyond this, the way that gold is being mined in the Basiso Guayani, they're using mercury to get to gold. I have never seen uh, numbers for the uh, mercury levels in the uh, basins, but it is happening. In order to take the gold, they add mercury to the water when they wash the sediment. And that mercury is, uh, you can't see it, and it remains in the water for a long time. And we don't know downriver what is the impact on the population because it is a lethal uh, uh, element. And so it's something we have to study uh, closer. The uh, mining arc is a very malignant concept. How do we control it? How? This is something we will have to approach from a national security standpoint, without a doubt. you're describing as one of our questions. And the second question is, how does the petroleum industry affect the water? I didn't hear that. Oh, could, you, could you repeat that a little bit? Mi pregunta, ¿quiénes son los mineros que están haciendo la mina? Who are the miners who are doing illegal mining? And my second question, how does it impact the oil industry, uh, the water? What happens at the oil uh, industry is uh, uh, gravely de deteriorated. We see it, and what is public is uh, what we see are the lower production rates. But everything uh, uh, 
uh, industrial security. We don't have numbers. We have uh, accidents such as very large oil spills. In the case of uh, uh, the Guarapiche is the river that uh, feeds into the Guarapin. There was a very big oil spill. And so that source has been damaged and it remains uh, significantly damaged. The, it is not worse because the oil sources are not close to the cities. But from an environmental perspective, we have evidence of significant large oil spills. And maybe the most important impact of the deterioration of the oil uh, product is lack of uh, productive chlorosoda is a byproduct. Sulfuric acid is a byproduct of the oil business. And so we don't have them available. And uh, so we, because of the oil business deterioration, it, we don't have the chemicals we need. And besides, the oil business deals, uh, deal, they, they deal with them as if were uh, uh, public security uh, or law enforcement issues. So they keep that secret. But the, but the oil oil uh, spills, as you know, they are not cleaned naturally. They don't uh, take care of themselves. As to where the miners are from, most of them are Venezuelans. But there's uh, people from Guyana, from Brazil, and from Colombia in that entire uh, IRS. The Venezuelans are the ones that concern us, of course. It's not the it's not the typical miner. It is anybody in Venezuela that is looking for some kind of income. And so people from Lara State come there. We calculate that the people flowing in is over between two and three million people in that mining, illegal mining areas. In terms of epidemiology, this is very important because the person who's coming from Polamar comes to the mine. Uh, uh, gets a parasite, goes back home with a parasite, and because Venezuela is a tropical country, its vectors are very efficient, and then you have a outbreak in Porlaman. Uh, they get a disease that hasn't had it for 60 years. And so it, the parasite establishes itself in an area where we don't have the vector. So it is, uh, uh, it is uh, uh, spread. Before, we had malaria in only one place, Sifontes. But, but because of this mining, then we've had uh, malaria everywhere, in La Guaira, in Porlamar, and other Tui River basins, which is 20 kilometers from Caracas. They have active uh, malaria outbursts. Caracas doesn't have it because it is too high up in the mountains. But that is that the malaria and the spread is uh, directly related to the uh, illegal mining. Good morning. I'm Juan Pablo Morica, representative of the National Assembly of Venezuela. I was elected as a governor of the state of Zulia. Uh, I refused to. Uh, go along with that farce of this Chavista dictatorship. Quick question. How does central uh, centralization of services has affected these e utilities, especially in the way in which these uh, services are provided or, or get to the final user? Uh, 
I would say that the most affected by the centralization process are the Carreguellos. This model of centralization doesn't respect the autonomy of the different areas around the, the capital. But in the state of Sulia, yeah, there is no state is, that is more loved, that has uh, more riches and treasures in it, is the one that has also suffered so horribly in terms of uh, the water provision. This regional approach uh, with these regional uh, companies with a local focus, we think that based on size, there aren't municipalities that really are able to make these regional companies uh, more efficient. But this model for decentralized things with in autonomous regions has shown that water services can be financed, uh, paid for by the industry and users. And it is one of the most important uh, autonomous uh, aspects that we have, both in terms of the use of financial resources and natural resources. Engineering, uh, both for the rebuilding of these structures and, and institutions, will have to involve making them more robust and not so dependent on Caracas. Some may think, well, in Caracas, things are they're they're better off, but people are are really suffering. Yeah. No one wants the, the president of the republic to necessarily move to, to their town. Thinking about it. Um, m much of what we talked about relates to access in the urban area um, at the largest population centers. Um, what's the situation in, in rural Venezuela? And does the, um, the Ruta de Agua, thinking about how you help those families. In the National Survey on Hospitals, we looked at hospitals, electricity, water, access to emergency services, human resources, and emergency services. And the pattern that we saw is exactly the same. It's, it, it radiates out and, and gets worse as it goes farther from, from Caracas. The farther away from Caracas it is, the worse the service. And the, and the north-south region is the worst. We're not talking necessarily about the north as in the west. The west always has, has, has it worst off. But that is reflected in all of the indices that we looked at in, in this survey. Again, to the degree that you're farther away from Caracas, the worse things are. Thank you very much, and thank the panelists. Thank you, everybody, again, for coming to CSIS today. Uh, we're going to start our second panel of the day, which is going to focus on, on the path ahead, right? And as, as, as it was discussed in the previous panel, uh, 
Venezuela's infrastructure on, on, on water management systems were, was one of the most sophisticated in the region, but now today is completely collapsed, right? This is an unprecedented uh, crisis that has impacted so many type of issues in, in, on the health education, as we all learn. But right now, the discussion is going to be about the future, right? I mean, this is a country that is going to need the huge help from the international community, including the private sector, uh, international organizations like USA, the, the UN, and other, and other actors that um, will be needed, right, to help rebuild Venezuela. Many people ask me, like, Moises, why talking too much about the future of Venezuela? What if we never get there, right? What, what if Maduro stays in power um, um, for, for many more years? And, and my, my answer is always the same, which is as long as we have a slim probability, a slim possibility to, to, to uh, free Venezuela, we need, to get, we need to be ready. We need to get ready when, once that opportunity arises. And, and, and we cannot be ready when that day comes in. We need to be ready beforehand. It's so important for the success of the future of the country to, to be ready beforehand. And that's why this type of dis discussions is so important, especially on a sector that is so, so basic, right? Water. Without water, you cannot do pretty much anything on the economy, on, on, on the health sector, on, on the education system. So it's, it's so important, and I want to emphasize the, the, the importance of having um, you know, discussion with the international community on what is needed to help Venezuela rebuild once the opportunity arises. Okay, today... We're going to first hear from a Venezuelan expert who is also plan of, of, of the initiative Plan País, Norberto Bauzon. He's a water and sanitation coordinator from Plan País. He's a former vice president of operations from Hidrocapital, uh, the uh, water management organization that runs Caracas water system. Herma, uh, uh, and Norberto is a, is, a, uh, is a director for water-related businesses in Indice Corporation, and he has a vast experience in, in so many sectors in, in, in Venezuela and abroad, right? So we're very honored to have Norberto with us today. Um, we're going to hear from Norberto. It's going to be a 15-minute presentation, PowerPoint presentation, and after Norberto finishes, we're going to introduce the panel and going to have a discussion. We're also going to have time for Q&A from the audience, so please uh, just prepare those questions for the panelists, and, and then we're going to wrap up and then have for the lunch, okay? Thank you, Norberto, for joining CSIS. We're honored to have you, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Buenos dias. Good morning. Thank you, Moises, and uh, all uh, in attendance. It is a great pleasure to be here uh, from Caracas to try to explain uh, about our infrastructure in Venezuela. It is a pride of many Venezuelans, uh, hard work from of many Venezuelans, which is currently in a very critical uh, condition. I've been working with Plan Plais for several months already. Saraguirre, Isman Uzgatigui, 
and uh, when a group of uh, professionals that have been uh, working uh, on this uh, different aspects and we are bringing uh, you a summary of the physical infrastructure what the status is and how important it is uh, about what is happening to the aqueducts infrastructure. The aqueducts in Venezuela were designed to be strong. They're important systems, uh, pipelines, pumping stations, treatment plants, uh, distribution centers, a very complex infrastructure. The designs were done well. They were meant to work 20 years without large maintenance uh, and without any updates for those 20 years. But today, because of that lack of uh, service, is uh, in a state that is deplorable. Uh, to begin with, we have come to realize that without public services, it is very difficult to govern. The experience of this new political layer that is leading this uh, uh, wave of changes in Colum in Venezuela, we've realized if we we don't have. Uh, uh, public services in 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 Venezuela. If we don't have uh, utilities that are at the level that the population needs, there is very very difficult to govern Venezuelans. How are you going to manage this in Venezuela? We can now say that we're even lacking indicators. Many of you are probably worked in uh, public uh, uh, entities, entities such as this, and you know what kind of indicators are needed. In the case of water, uh, it's liters per person per day or water that is unaccounted. There's so many indicators. And let me confess here, we are only using one in Venezuela, is how many uh, demonstrations were there in Venezuela or how many times were the highways closed in La Guaira, or how many times did people have to position themselves uh, against the government to see if the government would do something about it, because that's how things are being handled right now in Venezuela. And again, if there's no drinking water, there's no health. I think this became very clear in the panel, the earlier panel. When we talk about the plants themselves, we will go deeper into this. But the treatment plants in Venezuela that were part of the pride that we felt of the infrastructure in Venezuela, where would you go to that plant? And the people who were working there were people uh, dressed well. They had a uniform. They were educated. They studied to know more of what they were doing, and they were very proud in the fact that uh, dirty water would come in and we would have drinking water after treatment. Currently, uh, visitors are banned from those treatment plants. We don't see what's happening, but we see the results. 
So the economy needs a reliable service. Without uh, water, we don't have progress. There's entire regions like Sulia in, uh, in the country, oh, the south of Venezuela, where unfortunately uh, the lack of water has created a diaspora abroad or inside. Many people are uh, leaving Baracaibo and going to Caracas. The reason being lack of water, lack of power. So the economy has suffered as a result of uh, the, the, la the absence of drinking water. Agriculture in Venezuela has well as uh, a very uh, small compared to before because uh, the, the water needs are the same and they've suffered. They have about 2,000 uh, wells that are dry. So that impacts uh, productive services. Plan País has uh, uh, give, uh, have, uh, have uh, focused on production systems, uh, plants. Bec uh, uh, the, the plants are the key parts of aqueducts, and we say, we see that the most important in order for production to increase, the services have to be more available. All the figures we have so far say that a large national systems work at 50 to 55 percent of their uh, design capacity, so at half of the operation capital or capacity we had 50 years ago. Our systems were able to supply water at estimated 110, 150 thousand liters per second, and we're at half capacity. Why? Because this wonderful architecture built over 60 years was able to uh, bring water to 60 million inhabitants, not today. In terms of the treatment plants, there's a there's a problem that uh, is uh, uh, scaring us right now. I th it's it's non-manageable right now for several reasons, and we'll be looking at them later. But in spite of the uh, water treatment plants have received a lot of investments, even from my lateral uh, uh, efforts, they've all failed. In terms of distribution water, uh, water distribution systems, uh, and let me say, you know, to add insult to injury, we have less water, we have less quality, but and, and then it's not being distributed. So there's cities, there's areas in the city that never gets water. In other parts, there's water arriving once a month, and then there's others every now and then, and in others all the time. So the model we have in Venezuela is... Um, comparable to none. Uh, production systems. Venezuela, as a tropical country, we have, we know that we have to save the water we get in winter to use in the summer, which is the dry season. We have 50, uh, 74 very large uh, 
uh, dams uh, that you saw. This were distributed along the country. And those uh, dams are for different purposes. Some of them are for uh, generating, uh, for hydroelectric power, for uh, water, uh, drinking water, for tourism, for whatever. These 74 dams were built as the best aqueducts in the country. And I, I can say that uh, the water basins that feed them are it, it deteriorated all the way. And as was said before, many have uh, uh, pollution and contamination. So the first treatment that an aqueduct receives, which is a biological uh, treatment, is non-existent. So what the uh, water treatment plants receive is something that they cannot handle. That uh, add, that adds one negative thing to another one. So uh, uh, bad quality water reaches a treatment plant which cannot treat that kind of liquid that is uh, receiving. After that, we have uh, lo uh, large, uh, uh, larger than 24-inch uh, pipes. All those pipes are also, uh, you know, a part and parcel of our system. They have all been. There's always there's issues in all of them, incrustation and all sorts of other uh, matters. So uh, right now, it's where we should begin the rehabilitation system uh, for the water um, water availability. Uh, the disorder everywhere, all of this has, uh, you know, the result of all of this is that the people don't have any water coming to them. The pumping uh, systems. Another important uh, matter in Venezuela is that uh, in uh, many parts of the country, the water is either very uh, uh, at a distance uh, under where the population or very far away. So we need power of some sort to get this water to the people. We need about 800 meg uh, megawatts just to feed the pumping uh, stations in the country, in addition to the rural aqueducts that also uh, need uh, power uh, and uh, and health-wise, we have about 2,000 uh, uh, wells that must be uh, that must work in order for those people to have uh, drinking water. All of these uh, pumping systems throughout the country are the uh, the choking points for the pumping system. If we don't improve those choking those pumping systems. There, there won't be water reaching the cities. And we have sort of uh, assessed. We know what the situation. So maybe not fully, but we already have it uh, quantified and uh, assessed. And so we know we need uh, technical, uh, highly technical works and investments. We already have some machines. Uh, we're talking about 20,000 uh, horsepower 
you know, so it's not something we can go buy at a store. No, we have to do a procurement, a bid, a request assistance from from abroad. So we have to have a strategy, procurement strategy to rehabilitate systems. And maybe this is the, where the most time will be spent to restore these uh, aqueducts to capacity. Uh, uh, once again, this uh, uh, productive systems where we have 24 systems that we could uh, uh, call them large systems. And I'm talking about cities that are larger than 20 million inhabitants. 200,000, sorry, interpreter corrections. Uh, and these systems work by uh, pumping and propulsion. These are very long, or they have uh, significant uh, uh, topographic consequences. So we know in the plan, plan base, we know how and where we want to uh, uh, approach the issue. Regardless, uh, the assessment that we have to do uh, nationwide, we will uh, see, because what is happening uh, in the last years, you know, they're trying to invite the Chinese, the Scottish, the Americans, everybody's investing money. And what happened? The assessments were not uh, uh, correct. So if you're uh, trying to solve and the place you begin uh, by uh, solving, you know, it doesn't need it or can't work, then nothing works. The water treatment plants, uh, well, the service is so poor that many people don't pay much attention to the quality. If, they're, if they receive water, they throw a party. That means that recently there are pretty much two regions in Venezuela where people who get water through the pipeline is of such poor quality that people say that they honestly don't want water sent through that system because they hate it, because basically the water that, that arrives through the tap is the color of this. So that then has led the, the populations in these areas, that is the lack of the quality of water in the Bolivia state, has led people to say that the water comes through the tap is only used for the bathroom. Everything else, if they have need of water for anything else, then they go to the uh, tanker trucks or, or any other place where they could purchase water. It would seem as if I'm speaking poorly of, of Maduro's government, but I'm simply speaking to facts, what's happening. It's just demolishing this uh, system to the extent that people, the few people who receive water through uh, through the piping system don't want to use it. It's that bad. And that's because, again, these water treatment plants uh, are, are overrun. Where certain processes should necessarily take place, uh, very demanding, rigorous processes, if the the equipment is, is failing, you can't move forward. For example, assume you're going to do an operation without the right tools, then that 
that patient won't be cured. If what comes out of the water treatment plant is not potable water, then things are awry. And even now, if we can say that potable water makes it out of the water treatment plant, it's not arriving at, at households. And that's because all of the, the pipelines have been polluted. And again, we're talking about very little amounts of potable water that exit the, the water treatment plants. People are just using their, their senses to assess this water quality. We're talking about poor quality for a high percentage of the population. Either, and then other, others say the, the smell, the, the color of it is just not acceptable. I was saying that the treat, these water treatment plants have, uh, have gone through different restoration, rehabilitation processes, and they've been assessed. But unfortunately, there's no magic wand to improve them overnight. So with this plan país, we have to take that into account. That is, what's the roadmap for getting to a place where we can guarantee that people, at least in the first few months under the new government, would have 50 liters of potable water per person. That's one of the, the goals that we've set in Plan Pais. We're not hoping to provide 200 liters per person of potable water, but 50 liters a day of potable water, potable water. That's the goal. That will have a huge impact on health. The distribution systems also have a tremendous number of requirements that will allow the system to distribute water equitably. There's not just a, an issue of scarcity in production, but also once you're producing, it seems like half of the water that you are uh, producing, uh, a way of looking at this graphically is that 20,000 uh, liters per second, that you have two tankers worth of water that, that come in. But now instead of 20 per day, you have one of those coming in. And after that cistern, that's 10,000 liters. That has to be distributed among three to 400,000 residents. And then we're talking also about communities that are at different elevations. And when they're farther away or at a place that requires more pumping, then they're receiving even less. So those, there are the areas in, that surround uh, these cities sometimes uh, are receiving the least. So the, the poorest are, of course, by far the hardest hit. When we're talking about the, the outer rings of the large cities, sometimes even there, there's no water. Water has, our water has become the most expensive water in all of Latin America. If you buy it from a, 
If you buy it off the water truck, it's about $10 per uh, cube, metric cubed. In Venezuela, the poorest are having to pay $10 for each uh, metric cubed of, of water. All of this is related to the aqueducts, water system. Sometimes people don't realize how much is being lost in the networks themselves. There's no way of uh, measurement or micro-measurement. It would seem like it's really technical. It's not. There is no business in the world, no matter what it is, that can conduct business without keeping tabs on how things are going. If you're not looking at the macro and micro levels in terms of uh, metering, then you don't know how much is coming out of this lake, how much is going through that treatment plant. So you don't know how to correct the system in an efficient manner because you don't know where the problem is. However, the estimate in some very uh, careful studies that have been done is that a huge percentage, 15% of the water that's being sent out is being lost. And that is all added to something that was already mentioned, which is the water tariffs are practically non-existent in Venezuela. Somebody who has a water tanker is you know, charging more than any someone with an entire water system. So it's a complete breakdown in these services of companies that provide water. So within Plan País, we will deal with that as a key element. The aqueduct or, or water system companies have to improve upon this the very first day. And that's a message that we're getting out. Again, we're talking about the first day because if those uh, water providers have 2,000 units throughout the country to conduct repairs, if, if we don't work with them, we're not going to be able to improve upon the improvements made to the water system. The workers in, in this water system are working or ensuring that these systems survive, and they're hoping that there will be new leadership who will take control and allow for decent work. So then that's also a critical point that we're touching upon in Plan Pais. Again, one of the challenges is that we have limited resources, but thankfully, within Plan País, we have an approach that has some anecdotes to this mortal venom, a poison that we're dealing with. We're going to ensure that the money, the monies that are received, are used well. Uh, one of the ways of uh, managing this system is seeing how thing, how well things go, but people truly understand the impact of not having water, having quality water, whether they have specific information on it or not. And now I've come to a, a critical point. The 
the rebuilding of this water system will require the assistance and support of all citizens and educators. We have to come to understand that this is a public service, this and it requires specific skills. So wrapping up, I would say there are many fronts in which we have to uh, to wage this, this war, but we have some serious issues to deal with. It's a very difficult uh, issue. So that's why we're calling upon strategic partners who will assist us in taking on this huge challenge and coming up with solutions. Something we've seen in Venezuela sometimes, however, is that sometimes we have all sorts of partners, some of them uh, wearing different hats and coming from different areas. However, they have been unable to solve uh, the problems of the day. So I think we have to be very careful in selecting the partners with whom we'll work. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Norberto. about Norberto. He's a civil engineer at Universidad Santa Maria, where he teaches graduate-level coursework in, in environmental engineer. He also worked at Hydro Capital, as I mentioned, as a vice president, but also as a president between 1992 and 1999. And he also is, um, um, was a president of the Municipal Institute of Water and Aqueducts for the Sucre Municipality. Uh, so that's important to highlight. Great, so thank you. Uh, now we have an expert panel just to talk about all of these issues about rebuilding the water management system in Venezuela. Uh, we have two experts joining. Um, one is uh, Hugo Rojas. He's the Director General of the Asociación Nacional de Empresas de Agua y Saneamiento from Mexico. He's, I think is a valuable experience that, that we hear from Hugo. How is he uh, seeing this issue from Mexico, right? And, and it's so important to, to to learn from, from, from regional experiences like Mexico. He previously served as the head of the Department of Planning in Potable Water System in, in Puerto Vallarta, Jalisco. He's a graduate from Autonomous University of Nayarit with a degree in economics. He holds a Master of Business from the Universidad of Guadalajara. And so thank you, Hugo, for coming to joining us today. Um, but first, we're going to hear from Catherine Bliss. Catherine is a senior fellow for the Global Health Policy Center here at CSIS. Uh, she has an expertise in social science, science in Latin America. Um, in, I mean, she, in addition to, to all, all of the experience that Catherine has on, on global health challenges, right? I mean, HIV. Uh, vaccines. She also has the experience on water access and sanitation. So it's very valuable for us to have Catherine joining this panel. And she previously served as a deputy director and senior fellow with America's program. So we're honored to, to always remember that. Thank you, Catherine. She also served as a deputy at the Global Health Policy Center here at CSIS. She received a AB in history and literature magna cum laude from Harvard College and her PhD in history of the, from the University of Chicago. Uh, so, I mean, she has a vast experience. She also worked at the State Department on all of these issues. So thank you, Catherine, for joining us. So what we're doing, we're gonna do five minutes. We're gonna hear from Catherine, from Hugo, and then we're gonna have just a discussion before we open it up for, for questions. Thank you. All right, well, thank you, Moises. Um, what I thought I would do 
is try to center my remarks or, you know, really around five themes or questions. And these are data, uh, using a gender lens to analyze some of the issues around access to water and sanitation, existing legal and international institutional frameworks that may be helpful, uh, the linkages between WASH and health security, uh, and then identify some potential avenues for institutional support uh, around the issues. Uh, so the first, you know, we've, I think this will resonate with a lot of what we've already heard this morning, you know, is the issue of data. Uh, if you look at the 2019 WHO-UNICEF Joint Monitoring Program report on access to safe drinking water and sanitation, the information for Venezuela in the 2019 report says it's from 2015, but, you know, in fact, some of the reported numbers, you know, were actually from the government, I think were actually even a little bit earlier. So finding a way to gather current information and accurately document access to water and sanitation in rural and urban settings in a way that can be compared effectively to previous years and across the region, I think is really essential. Um, the second issue that I would just put forward is to, to think about using a gender lens when analyzing some of these issues. You know, as we've discussed earlier, it tends to be vulnerable populations, uh, particularly the poor, the ill, uh, the aging, uh, babies, as well as women and girls who bear the greatest burden, the health burden and otherwise, of the lack of access to safe drinking water and sanitation. Now, some of this is because of gendered expectations about work and education and contributions to the household. Because of this, girls may be the ones, you know, requested or asked to fetch water, often putting them at risk to their own security if they have to either travel or enter unsafe spaces in order to, to procure it. Uh, without access to water and clean sanitation facilities, girls and women may face challenges managing menstrual hygiene as well. Uh, similarly, with women frequently expected to do more of the cooking and domestic tasks, lack of access to water, and we heard about you know, even just the challenges preparing food without water, uh, may make it more difficult for them to complete their tasks, putting them at a disadvantage within household power dynamics as well. So I think in some ways, you know, it can be helpful to take a rights-based approach, a gender rights-based approach when thinking about some of these issues. Um, thinking about some of the, the legal frameworks and international institutional instruments, um, I would just point out in 2010, the international community recognized access to safe drinking water and sanitation as a human right, uh, with leaders at UNGA in 2011, calling on member states to identify concrete steps that could be taken to improve access within their borders, to carry out surveys and, and take concrete steps. This is not a legally binding um, aspect, but it does show the importance the entire international community attaches to assessing, analyzing, and documenting access to water and sanitation. Now, if you look at Venezuela's 1961 constitution, going back you know, almost 60 years now, uh, this artic articulated health as a right of the citizenry, stating that everyone has a right to health protection. The more recent constitution from 99 also guarantees a right to health. And this goes back to you know, the formation of the World Health Organization as well, the, the right to enjoy health. So these are both international, regional, and, and national values and concerns. Um, and then, you know, again, thinking about some of the gender issues I raised earlier, Venezuela ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child in 1990 and is a party to the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women as well. 
So it, it may be that some of the, the language and the documents um, in these international instruments can provide guidance or a, frame, a framework for thinking about WASH issues. You know, I would just mention also the issue of, of access to water and sanitation as an aspect of health security. This morning we heard quite a bit about access within health facilities in particular. And I would just say, you know, the dearth of water and sanitation facilities within the healthcare setting is especially worrisome, especially in this age of, you know, discussions about antimicrobial resistance and the prolifera proliferation of pathogens that, that really, you know, have very little treatment. Uh, so, you know, as an aspect of infection prevention and control, you know, certainly this is something we want to look at. We heard about this this morning, and I think, you know, we'll talk about it later as well. Um, you know, just thinking about potential avenues for support, I tried to think of some sort of non-state, non you know, non-governmental organization, you know, professional associations that might be able to provide technical support, technical guidance. I think Ugo will talk about, about some of the experiences from the association in Mexico as well. But just, you know, three, I guess, you know, I would point out, point out are, you know, one is AIDIS, the Asociación Interamericana de Ingeniería Sanitaria, or Ingenieros Sanitarios, I'm not sure, <laughs> but formed in the late 1940s, uh, right around the time PAHO became the regional arm of the World Health Organization. It's a separate, nonprofit, professional association offering its members technical guidance and support. Many of you may be members. There's a, a chapter in Venezuela, but it's possible the extended diaspora can be enlisted to offer technical support and advice. Second, you know, would be the International Household Water Treatment and Storage Network, uh, which is focused on promoting point of use, water treatment and safe storage options. You know, what we heard this morning about the lack of access to chlorine, you know, makes perhaps some of those um, options and products more challenging than others, but, you know, there are also ceramic filters and, you know, other kinds of, of point-of-use methods uh, for water disinfection and storage that, that the network promotes and provides guidance on. These can be useful within the home, at facilities such as schools, cafeterias and dining halls, in food preparation clinics and other venues. Um, I think it's broadly under the World Health Organization WASH unit, but is an alliance with, with universities and non-governmental organizations and community organizations as participants. And then as we were speaking earlier, I also thought about the University WASH Consortium, which we, here at CSIS, we actually used to host the Secretariat, uh, but it's now at the Desert Research Institute uh, in Nevada. But, you know, this is an international, um, association uh, really trying to bridge uh, the, trying to bring academics, you know, together from around the world around water and sanitation issues, around exchanges of information, around training and bringing uh, graduate students to, to work with, with teams in different countries. Brings together social scientists, public health experts, engineers, biological sciences, and more. And it occurs to me that, you know, because we have so much expertise represented here of, you know, within the university environment and others, that this may also be an opportunity for helpful exchange around WASH and rebuilding kinds of issues. So I think I'll stop there and, you know, just look forward to, to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Hugo, gracias por venir. Thank you for coming. Uh, before anything, I would like to thank the uh, uh, CSIS for the uh, invitation. It is a great honor as an organization of uh, companies of water and sanitation to be invited to talk about what we can 
do to provide uh, support in terms of humanitarian assistance, technical assistance uh, uh, to our neighbor, Venezuela. ANEAS, the uh, National Organization of, uh, of uh, Water Sanitation, we have over 35 years of experience in the area. We have a very tight and close link with many associations in Latin America and Europe, United States, of course. And uh, we work trying to provide support and strengthen institutional capacity and water tr uh, management uh, work uh, Mexico, which is, of course, our main priority. But uh, we also uh, join in the efforts of, uh, of uh, learning and give support to the region who want our input. We have 95% uh, partners of... Uh, uh, public uh, companies of water utilities, but we also have 5% of private utilities who've worked uh, very successfully in the country. Aguascalientes is an example as the highest efficiency levels. We also have a private company that operates in a city that you probably know, and if not, please come to Cancun. It is uh, known as the municipality of Benito Juarez, Nobody knows it uh, by that name. Everybody knows it by Cancun. But it fulfills the uh, expected efficiency and levels that can uh, cover a tourist site as Cancun to the level it is. Uh, among our, our associates are our water departments, uh, uh, local and state uh, companies, and the uh, university, the UNAM, the Polytechnical, the Colegio de México, and other academic institutions. The University of Buenos Aires is also one of our members. For us, uh, the, the, the purpose of uh, water uh, policies for Mexico and the world are, uh, encompass five topics that can be analyzed. One of them, of course, is ensure human right to access to water, the most important right. And there's international uh, frameworks that is the minimum the countries should have. The second is to uh, maintain the environment, our natural resources, and conserve everything that is not exclusive to one country, because this source is, is not just for one country, but for the world. And so it's our obligation to keep them. The third is to foster uh, econo economic development, because without water, as we said before, without adequate uh, treatment for contaminants, it's impossible. Somebody said that progress and development did not begin with its initials, but it began. It started with water, and we've seen it this way for the civilizations that we know at all. The population groups were always close to water so that they could develop. The fourth would be to ensure health. We've also heard about it this morning. Very educating presentations uh, that established the link of water to health. It is something we cannot put aside. And the fifth one, which is connected to the others, is to decreasing or reducing poverty, which has a lot to do with water and sanitation. Mexico calculate, Mexico has figures that says water and sanitation 
represent almost 40 percent of what a person uh, uh, that determines who is uh, a poor water and sanitation respond to 40% of that determination. So unless we improve this, we cannot improve uh, poverty levels, one being one, the uh, income for a family family group. Among the uh, ways that Mexico can help is with uh, WOPs, which are the, um, the links between operators. We can help the region. Uh, and Venezuela. We have operators that have uh, uh, quality standards that are equivalent to the either Europe or U.S. Uh, we have operators in the south, southeast that have uh, issues, but we already have alliances, if you will. We've helped uh, Honduras and Guatemala, Haiti, when they had uh, the uh, earthquake. This year, NEAS, the organization that I represent, is offering courses in water and sanitation throughout the country. And this allows us to broaden our expertise that is that can be replicated. And we've heard that large part of the problem in Venezuela is the brain drain that could do this. So this is an area that could be uh, open to uh, this assistance. And then to finalize, accessibility to water. It is something that we have to connect, to link to the level of poverty. I've heard that about frozen uh, rates for water, that uh, it is a consequence of the purchasing power of families. And if you, if you are trying to create uh, self-sustainable uh, uh, projects, they will necessarily have to have improvement of the uh, uh, purchasing power or levels of uh, quality of life because you can't give impose rates to people who cannot pay for them. So both things have to happen at the same time. People have to make more money, and the rates have to consider how much money is there available for payment. Another thing that is typical of our region in Latin America is that we haven't been able to give water the worth it deserves. When a country says, I'm not going to charge for water, it would seem that we're all happy because we're not spending in water. But the bad services because of a, uh, a fee structure will impact the poorest in a nation because that water has to be replaced by uh, water tanks, as we were talking before, or bottled water. And those are the most expensive water that is available. Imagine the, the difference that $10 uh, rate for $1,000 uh, rate, but for a cubic meter, instead of paying $10 for um, a cistern or a tank of water. It's a big difference uh, between rates and private water. We've seen this in populist governments that they try to gain the confidence of the population. And what had some happening is they uh, impoverish them more because when we hear about privatization is bad or negative, and that's uh, trying to add mercantilism to it is if you 
make uh, water expensive, that is uh, the problem because who enriches those who sell water? They become enriched those who are in in control of the water and is selling it at uh, excess, very high cost. And that's where our development is being hindered. I have also heard that rehabilitating Uh, uh, rehabilitating uh, the water structures, if you will, is uh, an easy assessment to to know where you start. So without knowing much more about it in the portable water and sanitation systems, Mexico knows that in every 20 to 30 years, all systems have to be re- redone, if you will. So if Venezuela hasn't undergone this since year 2000, When this rehab has to be done in the infrastructure, then maybe uh, everything will have to be redone. If you don't have the management and the proper uh, funding, it will be impossible. I've also heard that uh, regulations are worthless if there's no institutional changes. That may be why efficiency in the investment of funds that we're using in our countries That may be why there's no uh, changes made. I heard $10 billion invested, $10 billion that could go to trash if we don't properly employ it, if we don't have the engineers who could uh, take every uh, uh, worth of that investment. It will be an opportunity to apply new techniques, new ways of managing water, So, our region has opportunities as well. I also wanted us to remember that when we we freeze water tariffs, as has been done in in Venezuela, what we're really doing when we're not covering the cost of, of that water is we're leading to its unmeasured use. We have systems of taxes on certain products has to do with their rational use. It has to do with the use of a natural resource that belongs to everyone. So when it comes by you, you have to use it in a rational form because after you there will come other consumers, agriculture, or it will be sent to uh, fill up once again the aquifers. This is a right that we have to pay for. And it's a service we have to pay for. And it's a resource that we pollute in our home. So if we're not willing to pay for it, that's not good. So the just know that all companies working in water and sanitation have in us a colleague uh, that is more than willing to help the, reg- the countries of the region. I'm sure you've, you've heard that the federal government in Mexico would like to help Central and South American countries in this way. So I'll just leave you with that and and we'll happily respond to your questions. Thank you very much, Hugo. Yeah, sharing your experiences is quite valuable. I have just a few questions before we hear from the audience. One has to do with priorities. Venezuela is in a state of emergency. 
given the current panorama where we we just want Venezuela to be free of, of this and to have a democratically elected uh, uh, government. From the point of view of Plan País, and also I'd like to wrap in uh, the perspectives of Catherine and Hugo, what do you think should be the priorities for day one to the first month in order to mitigate the water crisis in Venezuela? And I'd like to point to what Jose Maria mentioned. He said that we're going to need a year in order to get uh, ourselves, dig ourselves out of this state of emergency in which we find ourselves. I wonder if you could speak to us about the, the top priorities that we should set in terms of how we're responding from a humanitarian point of view and ensuring access to water as soon as possible to the Venezuelan population. One of the important things that this plan uh, has for the rehabilitation of the system is to cre uh, increase the capacity of the government quickly. So among the actions that we've put forward that we think will have the greatest impact are those that will have an immediate impact. That is establishing order and attempting to provide services the best we can with what we have. So the network that exists in which there are many improvements that could be made, for example, in Zulia or in Caracas, where a part of the population has continual service, the other part of the population doesn't have any, obviously we need to make immediate improvements there. So those would have to be priority, uh, areas of priority focus. We have to focus on the people who generate this service. They are the ones who will help us improve upon things. So if you have an aqueduct that doesn't even have a pickup in order to do, to, for the staff to get around to different areas, or if there's no communications network, or if there's no um, um, instruments to repair things, then that's one of the first areas we have to focus on as well. So. From the, that would help us to increase operations as of day one, helping with logistics, helping with technology, and helping with the macro and micro metering immediately. We also are going on based on a certain premise. We're going to rebuild or rehabilitate, rather, what we have. Because right now, we're at 50% of our operating capacity. So within the first year, we want to recover that uh, operation ability, uh, those operations by 20%. That's a significant amount. We'd go from 55% to 80 or 70-something percent uh, in operation. Of course, we're going to count on the support of specialists and, and companies that specialize in this. So in the first days, we're going to ha have to fill the gaps. We're going to have to incorporate technology. Uh, sometimes that's not a, a quick fix, but 
this transition plan has to do with uh, leveraging what we have, making it more operational, and putting everything we have into ensuring that those who work at, in the water systems have uh, the best skills possible, so increasing uh, our capabilities. Voy a hablar desde perspectiva. Focus on two uh, two aspects. I mean, one is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, to collect data to um, under better understand the the situation and its impacts on health, poverty, you know, the economy, poverty alleviation, and, and other aspects. To uh, cat to catalog uh, the status of all of the different aspects of the the water kind of uh, situation writ large and to put that information, to capture it in a way that is comparable so that, you know, as, as we've heard, I mean, priorities can be set and can be, uh, can be understood. Also important, I think, is to, you know, hear from people themselves, you know, what, uh, what are their priorities, what are their biggest concerns and impacts so that when technical expertise, you know, is, is able to come in and really begin to remedy the situation, there is an ability to build a consensus around what are important issues for, for the people in that community. Thank you. Thank you. One issue that was brought up before in the panel that I think is essential is the lack of talent, right? Like people are fleeing Venezuela. There's a brain drain going on in massive ways. So that the, the human capital, as Jose Maria put it, is probably going to be even more important than the economic investment side. However, uh, the role of the, I mean, to, in order to attract those peoples back in Venezuela, there needs to be investment, right? And there needs to be a solid private sector um, in Venezuela. And as you all know, the private sector has been dismantled in Venezuela in the last 20 years. There has been more than 1,500 expropriations. And, and, and literally, this sector has been damaged and, and, and it has disappeared in so many sectors, including on the water system. So I wanted to ask Hugo, uh, since, I mean, you know, you, you, you're dealing with private companies and empresas, right, in Mexico. So in your view, how important, uh, what is the role, more broadly, of the private sector to get this industry off the ground in the initial response phase, which is more humanitarian, but also in the longer term, right, to set up a, a new system in Venezuela that works that is inclusive and uh, and that can help uh, you know mitigate all the problems moving forward. Thank you. Undoubtedly, uh, the assistance of the private sector would be critical. We have huge uh, private companies that work in our cities, and they're not just private companies in local areas, but Veolia, for example, in Aguascalientes is a huge conglomerate from Europe, and it has all sorts of technical abilities and the staff needed to conduct these efforts. Perhaps at the first stage, they might be able to provide training, uh, and perhaps with their financial potential help in that transition point. Those companies might be able to assist Venezuelan uh, endeavors and those responsible for the water uh, system. And they might also be able to supply staff little by little, however, having them replaced with uh, Venezuelan companies. 
as the primary uh, operators or, or service providers. But also as providers and construction companies, they could provide technology that might not exist in Latin America, but at this point have are, are more cost-effective and efficient and can really help. So these larger companies sometimes can provide that type of technology. They could also help with these uh, public-private um, associations. And given the budgetary constraints that we will be facing, that might assist uh, in a considerable way. Also, uh, different biddings on contracts or public procurement, I think that has to do with the legal framework. That will be important when we think about different uh, government contracting efforts in the future. But again, we could also look at mixed companies and how they might also permeate into the sector and provide uh, or leverage their their understanding of technology and, and expert uh, advice. It will also be critical to Uh, in. We have to understand that regardless of where the uh, service provider is, what people want is to have a good water and sanitation service. That is, above all, the most important thing. So for that, uh, what Catherine was saying, a lot of work has to be done with the population, uh, raising awareness so that people will know wh why uh, the quality, what's important about quality of water, the fact that it is clear doesn't mean it doesn't have arsenic or any other contaminant that is uh, harmful. And uh, in talking about uh, gender matter, also the women is important because what has shown us in small communities of Mexico is those who really defend services are women because women are the ones to take care of their children. Women are the ones who have to walk an hour to go get uh, clean water because they are the most affected by the lack of water or dirty water. So in the population in general, participation that we may have about all these topics, it will be women that will be the most important uh, sector. And what's important as well is that private uh, participation is not for private uh, uh, private individuals, not for privatization. It will depend on strong uh, institutions, uh, appropriate contracts so that there's no uh, mismanage or excesses. Uh, but uh, private participation is necessary as it is in many of our countries. Thank you. Okay. So very patient. Thank you so much. Uh, we're just going to ask you if you have a question, just raise your hand, uh, just say your name, say your affiliation, and go straight to the question. We're going to take maybe one here on the right side. Uh, let's take two. So one and two over there. I am Perkulowski. When I heard uh, mentioned six dollars for cubic meter distributed in, uh, in water tanks in Caracas, although this was 25 years ago, I remembered being an advisor for the only company who offered a proposal for water for Caracas in the Metropolitan Aqueduct. That offer was for one dollar fifty for cubic meter. But 
it had to face with the fact that at the time, eight cents uh, was uh, there were the the company was charging eight cents per dollar. The difference was uh, enormous. So the tendency is always to go back what uh, uh, official prices were, and there is no historical record of what the real cost of uh, water is in the market. If we had a real Uh, uh, account of how much they, the poor were really paying for water. If that were quantified, I think we could manage a, in the future because we continue to live in a country that has resources but are being exploited by the government and the oil. And one of the ways the people want to uh, solve this is through free water, free power, free oil. If we don't come out of that uh, cycle, it will be very difficult to bring the country back. Yes, it is important. Thank you. There was another question here in the corner over there. Uh, Thank you very much and congratulations. Excellent panel of uh, Max Campus from the OAS. I am in charge of uh, water resources at the OAS. It is incumbent of us uh, travel through the 34 countries and get to visit not only the government, the companies in water-related, but the people as well. And uh, I, I like to talk to the people to ask what their experience is to try to transform this into a political dialogue so that the 34 countries, at least to harmonize some of the ideas so that as a hemisphere can look for a solution. One of the ways that uh, calls my attention in this conversation is that social and human aspect that you've been touching upon with water. And we're talking about water not just as an element, but it's water as related to other sectors with agriculture, water with energy, water and uh, tourism, water and transportation uh, uh, channels, uh, all of them. So I think we cannot isolate Uh, the approach that would be uh, presented through a positive internation program for a sector that was so advanced in Venezuela as the water uh, sector. Uh, without uh, We can't approach it without taking into account all these others. I think there are, the nexus are there. Uh, we also have to t- pay attention to the risk uh, to disaster. They're t- related. All disa- most, uh, 80% of disasters are related to water in Latin America. And if we add health to that and uh, waterborne diseases, that's, uh, you know, it would be more than 80%. So this is a remark I would like, I wanted to say if we could approach it that way. The other thing was what we were talking about, what I say about repatriating the land. For Latin Americans, the example of Venezuela as a country that it is, it was so solid, so sound in its infrastructure for water and sanitation in the past, it was, uh, um, it was something unreachable for small countries such as mine. But uh, reg- uh, but in, in spite of the infrastructure uh, is there, it is extremely vulnerable as it is right now. So it concerns the U.S. and many other countries. I am fully uh, in agreement with you that uh, uh, private uh, incentive should be created there. Maybe um, uh, academicians have to uh, work in that. Uh, okay, because academics have the sabbatic, uh, sabbatical that they can come back and and uh, help with what they've learned. Not that they may go back to the country, but they could be part of the solution that we're proposing. 
And lastly, how can, oh, I'm sorry, what what does uh, gut governance have to do with it, you know, with uh, uh, legal frameworks, uh, financial mechanisms, the new financial mechanisms where uh, PPPs are part of it. But there's other elements among gut governances. One is transparency, accountability, and participation above all. And participation by the community, the society in all, which is uh, water management so that so that the water reaches people. People have to be part of the uh, structure. Mexico learned much about, with their experience, of how a very small percentage of the fee for the services by the different uh, utility companies were earmarked for specific projects for those communities that protected the water so that it could be used afterwards uh, there or elsewhere. So. It seems to me when we add uh, the community as part of the equation, then they will be more uh, in tune or they will be uh, behave in a positive manner vis-a-vis -vis the uh, water fees. Uh, but I think there is where would be uh, an opportunity with a new model of how to do business. Thank you. Very valid points to put them on the record. The panel has any comment to make about these um, uh, topics that were to uh, addressed? One of the most damaging things happening in Venezuela at the moment is that there are no, there's no record being kept, so that. Uh, um, you know, absence of uh, rates is part of what the, the government want. If you try to look at statistics like the one you have at the OAS, for example, none of those figures, that data is not kept. One of the things that my country provides information, uh, Venezuela does not. Why? Because information is not collected, data is not written down. One of the ways of making government today is doing it in the dark. One of the, the ways that you can do it is have people to have confidence in you. So the people who are managing water, they should tell the truth. They should tell you what how they're going to do it. It's not happening in Venezuela right now. I think that's one of the basic things. One of the ways, one of the most important parts of uh, public utilities management, there is, we have a law, LOSAP, they call it, and it, it includes there the uh, obligation to provide information as to what is happening or what is, what is being done to the aqueducts, to know how the service is going to be uh, uh, sent to the population or how controls are done. And that information is not uh, recorded. But that's the way they're operating the uh, public utilities, because they're using them as political uh, entities, uh, not to provide services to the population. Another thing, people are very fearful about privatization in the water sector. We're we we don't uh, you know we're not thinking of that at all. But if there's private 
investment in the re uh, reconstruction process for Venezuela, being it a very well-controlled, supervised uh, process where you can transform the, comp the entity companies into being sustainable. That's important. If that not happens and is like a headless government, we will unfortunately go down uh, going downward. So the state has to restructure so that it is public and private and in the very uh, positive uh, symbiosis we as well as we can change this because at the moment uh, private companies, capital private companies are prohibited from working or participating in aqueducts. That is very harmful. Uh, you know, uh, adding insult to injury, the law that uh, banned contracting services. There were many micro companies that helped in working. My, uh, operations were done with uh, small private companies, but that was eliminated. And so the power or the strength of those organizations were put back to these companies that have no capacity to conduct all the processes or do everything that's in it. And this is what, what has led to the situation now. Another thing that is connected to the fees for water is that there's ways of managing uh, water fees. We have to be very careful of linking poverty with fees because there's ways of, of uh, managing this. The very poor are the ones who pay the most for water in Venezuela. Before we close, Hugo, any, any? Yes, for sure. Just to conclude, what we have to do, what has to be done will depend on uh, first reaction, what we get from the uh, assessments. Assessments will take a long time. Uh, with the status of the aquifers, the status of the different water sources or the or the networks or the, you know, pipes. You know, you need time and technology to assess that. So the first thing we have to do is uh, um, uh, bring, you know, find out what the status is and bring water to everyone. So we will need technology so that we can treat the water so that it becomes potable water. I know there's technology. I know one that's in the Netherlands that you can use to bring water to the population. So as long as they have water from the from day one, then we will have the assessment and then we can rehabilitate all the treatment, uh, distribution, and so on. So as this coverage is expanded and as we see benefits, it is when the services will be able to be made public. And then we can just go to the back to the uh, communities and tell them we still don't have it uh, available, uh, you know, through the typical sources, but you will have an immediate solution. And from that, we go to the ideal to reestablish a water distribution uh, system with quality and sanitation. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.